0: All right, let's go Luke chapter 19. Um, Luke chapter 19, if you don't have a Bible, uh we uh, will have the text put up on the screens behind me in just a moment. Uh, if you're watching us online right now, we'll put the text up on your screen when we get to that part of our time together. Uh, if you don't own a physical copy of God's Word, one that you can call yours, uh, we actually love giving Bibles away around here. we got some really nice hardcover ones, and uh, I, I kind of like them. They're pretty. Right? Um, but we believe that God uses His Word for all kinds of important things. Chief, among those important things is that He uses it to reveal Himself to His people. We want you to know God. We want everything in and around your life to be shaped by knowing Him, defined by knowing him, evaluated through the lens of knowing him, and so uh, the scriptures are what he uses to do that in you, and so uh, we want to put a Bible in your hands if you don't have one of your own. Um, Luke 19. So I'll go ahead and confess, um, we, we got a pretty big hill to climb this morning. Some of you may have noticed the text for the day on the chalkboard, uh, and it's two and a half chapters. First of all, I'm sorry. <laughs> Secondly, we can do this. Alright, we're going to have to move quickly. Uh, Honestly, um, we're going to have to hit some things uh, more quickly than they rightly deserve, Uh, but we're going to try to give some big picture overarching uh, thematic ideas to to what we're going to look at today. We can't drill down as deeply as we normally would, but Never fear. I, I think we can we can actually truly pull this off this morning, uh, and I think it'll end up being really really good for us. and And the reason for that is because uh, it'll allow us to do something that, to my knowledge, we've never done here, or at least I've never witnessed us doing here in my four-plus years, uh, and that's this. I want us to spend this thing that we call Holy Week between this Sunday and next Sunday, I want us to spend this period of time that we call Holy Week looking at a singular gospel accounts version of the story. Now, normally we, we always read the death narrative on Good Friday, and we you know out of Luke or out of Matthew, and, and normally we we read one of the resurrection narratives on, on Sunday morning during our outdoor service. And so those are things that we do all the time. It's not uncommon for us to to, to preach about the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. Those are things we do, but we tend to, to jump around all over the place based on what we need to do for the given week. Uh, but this this year I really feel led to to, to take us from point A to point B through one gospel account and, and this year I want to do that through the gospel of Luke and, and and the reason why I want to choose Luke is because Luke's been running around with Paul and Luke's gospel account kind of carries this same this the same upside down kingdom of God worldview that a lot of Luke that a lot of Paul's writing does and, and now that we've been kind of digging our heels into that framework and beginning to think in those terms through our first Corinthians series, I I think it will maybe help us understand a little bit of what Luke is targeting in his account of the story. I think it'll help give us lenses to see some absolutely massive things that are going on through this thing that we call Holy Week. That's enough chit-chat. We got to get running. You ready to do this? All right, Luke 19. I'm going to read a little faster than I normally do. (laughs) I I, I promise I'm not going as fast as I would like. All right, I'm I'm acknowledging that now. All right, Luke 19, starting in verse 28. And when he, and that he is Jesus, right? And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany and at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied and on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. Verse 32. So those who were sent went away and found it just as they had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. Uh, And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Verse 37. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began uh, began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered them, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Okay, so Jesus has spent the last three-ish years or so uh, traveling around Judea, right? Those uh, you don't really have to have much of a of a church bi- background. You don't really have to have, have much of a of a Bible knowledge to understand that Jesus kind of traveling around and taught here and did miracles there for about a three-year period. And, and so he's doing this and he's doing that, and and we're told that he's teaching with an authority that the that the scribes and the Pharisees were kind of marveled at and kind of put them in their place. And he's been publicly performing miracles to authenticate his lordship, to authenticate his claims of being the Messiah. And so we're told, though, that he is making an intentional effort to get to this moment. That despite all the other things that we want to celebrate about his three-year public ministry, that the whole point of all those other things was to get to this moment. Earlier in Luke's account in chapter 9, he tells us that Jesus set his face like flint. To make it to Jerusalem. In other words, the teachings and the miracles and all those other really good things, they were certainly important, but those things took a clear backseat to Jesus' actual purpose of putting on flesh and dwelling among us. He came in order to be a sacrifice, right? It's great that he did this, and it's great that he did that, but all of those things were a stage, a platform to stand on as he authenticated his claim of being the one who came to fix the sin problem, not just the, I need a miracle problem. However impressed you might be with his earthly ministry, those moments were always intended to position him for this moment they were always intended to position him for the cross and so jesus has been traveling around slowly building up momentum and now it's time to to head into the city he gets a he gets to a couple of small villages bethany and beth page that are up on a mountain called mount the mount of olives or mount olivet right? and so he gets to these little villages outside the city of jerusalem and they kind of look down on the city of jerusalem and he goes okay boys it's time to get my donkey," right And We we studied this in years past. I think we looked at it a couple of years ago. He he calls for a donkey because that's exactly the way the Messianic king was supposed to ride into Jerusalem. Zechariah 9.9. Zechariah says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So hundreds of years before this moment, a prophet of the Lord saying, this is how the Messiah is going to arrive in Jerusalem. Jesus gets to the point where he's going. he goes "Hey boys go get me my donkey let's do this tells him exactly where to find the donkey and he tells him exactly what to say when it's owners when the owner obviously starts asking some questions about them taking his donkey hey where you going my colt the, the lord has need of it okay proving by the way that Jesus is not only sovereign over the placement of farm animals in tiny, barely heard of it before villages, but he is also equally sovereign over the temperament of the donkey's owner. He's got it. This this isn't up to chance for him. He is orchestrating things here. They go get the colt, they bring the colt back to Jesus, they put Jesus on the colt, and they begin riding victoriously into the city, just like Zechariah said. All right? And again, we've talked about this in years past, but there is no confusion about what's going on here. Nobody's going, hey, I I think I'll shout along. There's no confusion about what's going on here. Nobody is standing around wondering what the commotion is. The shouting and the celebration that we see here, it's a coronation parade. Jesus is actively asserting himself as the promised messianic king of Israel in this moment. And, and we see that clearly clearly with what's being shouted in verse 38. What does it say? I gotta turn back here. All right, verse 38. It says, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest, right? Those are absolutely massive things to, to declare about someone, right? Like if if you or I were were sitting up on a donkey's colt riding into town and those things would be shouting about us, do you deserve that praise? Do I deserve that praise? Even less so, right? Th- those are absolutely massive things to be declaring about someone. If if I were uh, if I were if I were receiving that praise in a way that I knew what was going on, that would be an incredibly arrogant thing for me to do, right? An incredibly arrogant thing for me to do. And I would need to quickly shut that down. I don't deserve that kind of praise, neither do you, because I'm certainly not the one who's bringing a, an eternal heavenly peace. And the Pharisees, man, they they fully understand the weight of what's going on here, the gravity of what's going on. They, these These kind of claims coming from a normal person, they're not just arrogant, they're actually blasphemous. And so they call Jesus out on it. They don't believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And so they speak up. Jesus, call your disciples down. Don't let them do this. And so what does Jesus say? Verse 40. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So Jesus not only affirms that he is actually worthy of such praise, but he tells the Pharisees that he will receive that praise from the rest of the creation if these don't, if these disciples don't pull it off in this moment. That, that he will receive the praise one way or another. If these people don't do it, the rest of creation will cry out. In other words, he doesn't merely deserve the praise of the king. He deserves the praises of the creator himself. Hey, how do you think the Pharisees thought about that little claim? They, they wanted to kill him. If you, if you don't know, that's, that's the answer. They wanted to kill him. Right there. There's a giant crowd, and they're all excited to see Jesus, and so they got to buy their time. So verse 41 happens. It says, And when he drew near and, the, and saw the city, So as Jesus draws nearer and nearer to the city, Luke tells us that he's heartbroken over it, right? And he weeps, we're told. So, so why is he all sad about this? It's because of the hardness of their heart towards him and towards the continued, the continued attempts by God to call them to heal. And their continued rejection. Of those moments. For generations. God had sent one prophet. After the next. After the next. After the next. Calling them to repentance. Calling them outwardly to salvation. But they would not hear him. In fact they didn't simply ignore the prophets. They murdered those prophets. They killed them. And now the greatest prophet ever. Was heading into town son of God himself. But the story's not going to play out any differently this time around. Why not? Because it's not the presentation that does the saving. Hearts must be changed. Hearts of stone must be turned into hearts of flesh. and, And that point is about to be finally driven all the way home. Jesus tells us now, and Jesus tells us that time has run out for Jerusalem's opportunity to, uh, for repentance, and he promises a coming day when the city will be completely torn apart. And it's pretty obvious that he's talking about the destruction of the temple that happens in 70 AD at the hands of Rome. Titus, who would later become emperor, is just a general right now with a point to prove, and he comes in and he absolutely decimates the city. Tears it apart, and they level the place. And the city obviously has been rebuilt since then, but the temple never has. S- since that moment, in 70 AD, it's still in pieces. And, and I personally believe it never will be rebuilt. We can have an over-cup-of-coffee a kind over a of coffee debate about that later, but it ain't happening. Despite being the epicenter of Hebrew identity, the time of repentance had come to an end. Jesus weeps over the city even as he rides victoriously into town because he knows that the last and greatest opportunity for repentance will play out exactly like it always has. He knows what this city does to her prophets. He knows exactly what it does, and it's time to hit the go button. And so in verse 45, we see this. And he entered the temple and began driving out those who sold, saying, uh, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Chapter 20, verse 1. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it, or who is It is that gave you this authority. Verse 3, he answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did we not believe him then? Uh, But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Okay, so I absolutely love Luke's version of this story because he just kind of glosses over the absolutely massive reality that Jesus got violent in the temple one day. Right? He runs everybody out of there. He doesn't say a word about flipping over tables, he doesn't talk about the, the whip or anything like that. It's just for, verse 47, he's like, And Jesus was teaching each day in the temple. (laughs) He just kind of runs right past it. As if absolutely nothing of consequence happened that day. Other accounts give you a much more detailed version of the story. Luke just got, whatever, he drove everybody out of the temple one time. We've spent a lot of time on that story in the past. The, The shortest answer for why Jesus did such a thing, why Jesus got mad and drove out all the vendors and the money changers, it's found clearly in verse 46. He says, my house shall be a house of prayer. In Mark's account, we're told that Jesus added, my house shall be a house of prayer for the nations. The the outer court of the temple, you had these circles of... uh, and walls and some of them were just kind of railings but you had these different courts that people could enter into based on who they were culturally uh, you, Gentiles, women, men priests, all those kinds of things and so uh, the outermost court is commonly called the court of the Gentiles and it was specifically set aside as the place the place in all of Judaism where those outside of the, the covenant people of Israel could get a taste of the goodness and the grace and the beauty of God and instead it was turned into a common market, right? A lot of people make a big old deal about uh, about whether it's good or right to change money or to sell the sacrifices. I, I think those were just market economy forces that kind of happened when people were traveling all over the place. The massive issue that's going on here is that's supposed to be a pl- place of prayer for the nations, and that's not what's happening there. It was a tur- it was turned into something common Instead of it being the best opportunity for the Gentiles to hear of the Lord and repent, it had become a barrier to that very opportunity. And Jesus goes off. Runs everybody out. Calls them a dinner of robbers. And <laughs> we're told that Jesus just comes back the next day and he's teaching again. Hey, how do you think the rulers of the temple thought about Jesus then? I think he's starting to stir some things up. I think they... He walked away from that moment, and they they liked him more than they did the day before. We're told that they immediately began looking for ways to discredit him. What authority do you do this? In other words, who do you think you are? Right? And Jesus goes jujitsu style on him. He asks them a question that stumps them. Was John's baptism from God or was John's baptism from man? In other words, uh, was it something that God did? Was it a movement of God or was it just this man-made thing, uh, an outside spiritual act of religious stuff? And, and and so Luke tells us that they know the answer to the question. But they refused to answer the question because they were scared of the crowd turning on them. They have an answer, They want to discredit John just as badly as they want to discredit Jesus, but they're not brave enough yet to say it out loud. And so in Luke, uh, in verse 9, Luke tells us this. And he, Jesus, began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. Uh, when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Verse 11, and he sent another servant, and they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved." Beloved son, perhaps they will respect him. 14. Uh, but when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When that, uh, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Um, when they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Verse 19. Then the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. For they perceived he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So Jesus doesn't simply just weep over how Jerusalem treated its prophet. He also gathers a giant crowd and tells a little parable, right? Hey, I I got a little story for everybody. And even the slowest folks in that crowd immediately picked up on what's going on, right? The temple authorities are quickly aware, hey, this story's about us. But again, they're scared of the crowd. They want to kill him right then and there, but they know that the crowd will turn on him. So they got to play this at an angle. And so the angle starts to play out in verse 20. It says, so they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, "'Show me a denarius. "'Whose likeness and inscription does it have?' They said, "'Caesar's.' And he said to them, "'Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, "'and to God the things that are God's.' And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent.'" Verse 27, "'There came to him some Sadducees, uh, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, "'Teacher!' Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterwards, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection uh, from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they cannot die any more because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Verse 37. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed, in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. So I really, honestly, truly wish that I could give more time to each of those passages and the attention they deserve, but we're aiming at overarching themes here, right? We're, We're going for big umbrella stuff. So the, the leaders here of the temple, they try their best. They, they load both barrels, and they go after Jesus with a, a stump-the-teacher kind of question in order to discredit him, all right? uh, with, with, with a theological, ethical question. And the question in the first attempt is made by the Pharisees. They want to know if God's people should be paying taxes to Caesar. Hotly debated issue of their day. And I can't for the life of me think of some kind of modern-day equivalent of that, right? here's the point though they don't care what jesus's answer is not one bit not one bit it's it's a diversion tactic because everybody in that crowd has a strong opinion about it and those opinions are all over the place nobody in that crowd is standing around going i've never thought of such a question they thought about the question. It was a hotly debated question of the day. If you threw out the most hotly debated question of the day in the middle of a Facebook group, how's that going for you? Forcing Jesus to answer here will immediately divide this crowd into. And with half the crowd to work with, the Pharisees have a better chance, don't they? They don't have to be as scared of the crowd when half the crowd's against Jesus now. But Jesus sidesteps them yet again. He says, give me a coin. Hey, whose picture is that? Caesar's picture. Caesar's government is the one who made the coin, and this government is simply letting you use it. It's his right to... to demand a portion of that treasure back. If you don't want to pay taxes to Caesar, don't use Caesar's coin. Go get your own coin. In the same way, while Caesar is rightly owed a portion of the things he created, God is certainly owed the things that he created, including your very soul. It's owed to him, and tax day is coming soon. It's owed to him. And Luke tells us that the Pharisees marveled at his answer. They're dumbfounded don't even know what to say. But the Pharisees aren't the only game in town. There's another group called the Sadducees, another religious political group of the day. They don't like the Pharisees. They're, they're, they're sitting back, uh, uh, kind of watching this go on, Go, please, please, the Sadducees, uh, if we wanted to give them a modern, you know, modern-day equivalent, they'd be most like the, the theologically liberal church of our day and age. They, they rejected a lot of things that that needed to be held on to. They rejected the, the miracles of the Old Testament. And most notably, they rejected the idea that God's people would rise from the dead, uh, that they would rise from the dead uh, physically. And so they're, they're, they're watching the Pharisees fail to stump Jesus, and they go, we got this. Come on, boys. They come up with a question of their own, uh, specifically about the resurrection, all right? And they, they create a ridiculous hypothetical scenario that they think will prove that the resurrection can't actually happen. And so, and so and their scenario is this. Okay, let's imagine a woman, all right? And so she gets married and ends up marrying a whole bunch of brothers. Whose wife is she going to be in heaven? <laughs> Whose wife is she going to be? Jesus, tell us. Why don't you bless us with your knowledge? As if that were something that God couldn't work out if he wanted to, right? I think that's going to be complicated for him. It's a completely ridiculous idea on the face. But instead of attacking it from that angle, Jesus instead attacks it from their understanding of marriage. He tells them that God has given marriage as a gift. But that gift is a temporary gift. There's coming a day when marriage will no longer be a thing for God's people, and the Sadducees' imaginary problem can only ever actually be imaginary. It's not even an issue. It doesn't matter because you're not dealing with husbands and wives in a heavenly state. They think they're smart, and they think that they're stumping the teacher, but they're really just proving that they have no idea what they're talking about. And so in verse 40, Luke tells us that they no longer dared to ask him any more questions. So Jesus has knocked down the Pharisees. And Jesus has knocked down the Sadducees. And nobody's brave enough anymore to try to stump the teacher. But Jesus didn't simply come to fight off their sad little attempts at an attack. He came to actually pick a fight. And so with them backing down and cowering in fear isn't good enough. And so in verse 41, Jesus does this. But he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And in hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, um, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. So Jesus flips the script and begins to ask a question to to stump them. He says, the Christ, the the, the Messiah, he's going to be known as the son of David. And sons in that culture automatically carry less honor than the generations that came before them. And so your father's more honorable than you, your grandfather's more honorable than him, and your great-grandfather is more honorable still, right? And so that's just kind of how life worked in that culture. But David, David calls him the Messiah. He calls him Lord. And so how can that be? How How can somebody coming down the line from David genetically ever be of higher honor than david that's the question and luke paints the picture that jesus doesn't even wait for an answer launches right into a warning about the pharisees they're standing right there like like they're there he immediately starts telling everybody in the crowd to watch out for those nasty pharisees Anybody who's got this mental picture of Jesus that he's nothing more than sweet and soft-spoken has never actually read the Bible. Gentle and lowly, yes, but sometimes he goes right after it with bare teeth set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. He rode into town as a victorious king, and now he is standing in the very middle of the Jewish world, actively picking a fight with those who have the power and the clout to kill him if they ever got poked hard enough. And Jesus is actively goading them. What we celebrate in the triumphal entry is the most grandiose and audacious religious and political moment in all of history. Jesus throws down the gauntlet and he is provoking them to do something about it. But he ain't done yet either because in verse 1 of chapter 21 he does this. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins, and he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. So in the very middle of this cosmic-sized battle for the soul of God's people, Jesus points out the simple yet overlooked faith, extravagant faith of this woman, Overlooked by everyone else. But, guys, Jesus sees her. He sees her. He notices her. Why, though? We're we're told that she she gave all that she had out of a devotion to the Lord. And upon seeing that display, Jesus turns up the volume to 11. In verse 5, he says this. And while some were speaking of the temple... How it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. He said, As for these things you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, Well, these things, uh, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said to them, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. So after the Babylonian exile, about uh, early 6th, century BC Zerubbabel uh, led the rebuilding of the temple all right but that temple was a little bit smaller uh, than than Solomon's temple several generations before right and so along comes Mr. Herod thinks he's great and so he wants to score some political points he's got some clout and he's got some money he's got the backing of Rome on his side and so he comes in and says hey we're gonna make things big around here we're going to expand what Zerubbabel did. I, I, we, we, we can't live with, with something that was smaller than our glory days, so we're going to blow this thing up. We're going to throw some cash at it. And so they start this grand renovation project of the temple uh, in about 20-ish B.C., I think, And so, uh, which is about 40-ish years before this moment. So everything's getting a facelift. They bring in a bunch of bigger, more impressive stones. They expand the footprint a little bit. Everything's getting plated with gold leaf. This thing is going to look classy. Bigger stones, they're wrapping stuff in precious metals and, and all kinds of fancy things and And most of it had been completed by this point, we think. Uh, But it would continue with various touch-ups for the next several years until about 63 AD. And so several years after this conversation. So they're always kind of in this constant state of renovation. Things are are really impressive, but they're always getting a little bit better, right? That's kind of the the tone of what's going on here. And so whenever people entered into the temple, there was always this new thing to to go wow about. Do you see what they did there? Look how big that stone is. how they get it up there? That's a, that's a nice gold-leaf lamp. That's a pretty lamp. People walked into the temple, and they were always impressed, going, whoa, whoa, whoa. Can you see all this stuff? What an impressive thing. Jesus takes notice of how people are talking about how adorned the place is, how noble the stones look. And he goes, boys, there's coming a day when not a single one of these rocks are left standing. It's all coming down. Every bit of it. Not one stone will be left on top of another. Everything you see here is about to be destroyed. You can imagine how the disciples would have heard that news. What are you talking about? This is the most impressive structure they had ever laid their eyes upon, right? It was supposed to be the greatest monument in existence to the glory and the prestige and the honor and the beauty and the presence of their God. What do you mean it's all coming down? But regardless of whatever motive Herod might have had in throwing all kinds of cash at renovating the temple, Jesus knew that the purpose it was originally built for was coming to a swift end. the time where the temple was needed was over. Its purpose was to be the physical location where God dwelled with his people, but Jesus is in Jerusalem right now setting up for the next stage. It's what he is there to do where God would forever dwell in his people instead of some temple on a hill. God didn't need whatever, whatever Herod was trying to, to make happen down at the temple. He didn't need whatever glory that Herod was trying to throw cash at and expand on the temple mount. It didn't matter what Herod added to the place. It didn't matter how many gold leaf lamps there were. It doesn't matter. God doesn't need it. It didn't matter how noble the stones look because because God doesn't live in a house made by human hands, right? It doesn't matter how noble the stones were. God doesn't need the house you build him. He told us that over and over again throughout Israel's history, right? You you think Herod can throw some cash at the place and make God more capable of being God? There's absolutely nothing that Herod can pull off that could somehow add value and beauty to what God is doing. As a a quick side note, this is one of the reasons why there will always be a trace element of ghetto here, right? Right? Like, we have this really nice building, we had a bunch of people here yesterday working on a bunch of projects that we, we made the place prettier, we made the place more efficient in a lot of ways, uh, like, a lot of work was done here by volunteers, and man, <laughs> they kind of knocked out a ton of projects, we had to create some projects for people to, to do, because our volunteers knocked them out really, really fast, but, and so, it's good and right to have those kind of things going on, but I'll, I'll tell you up front, like, I'm, If God were to take this away from us and call us to do ministry without this really impressive place, we'd be okay. Like, we want to be good stewards of it. We want to take care of it, even make it better. That's what a good steward does. But, like, if God chose to take it away, could we trust that it would be for our greater good and his better glory? I think the answer is yes. So if we ever cross over to a place where this thing becomes something that we try to use to make a name for ourselves, it might be better if he just took it away. We just didn't have it at all. That's for free. File that away for another time. The disciples are reeling against the idea that Jesus is promising the temple's destruction. And so in verse 7 they go, how? How? when what should we we be looking for uh, so when this when this happens that, that we're prepared for it and, and and here i think is the absolutely biggest drawback of trying to squeeze everything we're trying to squeeze in for this morning uh because jesus is going to answer them he's going to tell them when and how and what to look for but his answer is a giant swirl of prophetic promises and some of it's going to play out when rome sacks the city in 70 ad and some of it's not going to play out until uh, he comes again in his second coming and if i had three or four hours to devote to all this text this morning it still wouldn't be enough all right so we're gonna fly through with overarching principles and so uh in verse 8 jesus tells them not to jump the gun on this stuff he says don't be led astray and there's a lot of things that you can point to and say uh, surely the end is nigh even wars and rumors of wars but he says that's only the beginning of these things we're just getting started So in verse 10, he says this, then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lead, uh, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. Verse 13, uh, This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate uh, beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries Will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. But uh, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. Verse 20, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that uh, that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are the days of vengeance, to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be a great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people verse 24 they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations and jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the gentiles until the times of the gentiles are fulfilled so are these things about the fall of jerusalem or are they about jesus's second coming correct <laughs> yeah I, I think they're about both and there's there's some swirl in there for sure but I think the answer is yes. As in, what was fulfilled in the fall of Jerusalem will also be fulfilled in the destruction of all things. The judgment that was promised on Jerusalem is also promised on the rest of creation. False messiahs will step Forward. People will assert speculations of the coming of the Christ. God's people will be persecuted and they will continue to face hardship. Wars will continue to rage and natural disasters will continue to plague the earth until the day that Jesus finally and forever comes again and makes all things new. You want an example to whet your appetite? Watch what's about to happen in Jerusalem in a few years. But understand that it is only the beginning a shadow of what is really to come. In verse 24, Jesus tells his disciples that it will be this way until the time of the Gentiles has come to an end. And some argue, those that think that Jesus is only talking about the fall of Jerusalem here, some argue that, that well, that, that means that when the Gentile attack is over, so after Titus gets done doing what he's going to do to Jerusalem, things will be better again. Dark days for sure, but I mean, there's a timeline here, and then we can see the light at the end of the tunnel will be over soon those that see Jesus speaking of far more reaching realities, far, far more uh, far reaching realities, uh, they argue that Jesus is talking about the time in history where salvation is offered to the Gentiles, Allah Romans 11, right? Uh, there will be a time when that opportunity to is over towards the end of redemptive history, and so when that day finally comes, so too will the end of these hardships and persecutions. Until then, until then, we ought to expect that this is the way a broken world works. Rather than some kind of checklist for our play-at-home apocalyptic prophecy chart, Jesus is promising here that the broken realities of this world will bear their full weight on God's people until Jesus comes to take us home. That's his point. And, and man, really, it's text like this one. That really make me wonder if those in the prosperity gospel movement have ever actually read the Bible, because um, like you've got some things that are that are like that are really hard to simultaneously teach here that that Jesus is and wants you to live your fullest life now. And oh, look at these harbingers that we can point out, right? It's hard to to play up both of those things with that system of uh, of theology, but it, man, it'll sell a lot of books though, like a whole bunch of books. Last week, Tyler. He got up on the stage and he stood behind this podium and he talked about finding our rest in Jesus, right? About Finding our rest in Jesus, that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Church family, we follow a king who is gentle and lowly. He's a good king to follow. But here's the deal, though. You don't need Jesus to offer you rest if you've got everything in your control. You don't need Jesus to offer you rest when everything is rosy and in your power to fix your circumstances. You don't need a gentle and lowly Jesus when you've got the capacity to fix all the junk that's swirling on around you. So either A, Jesus is offering something that we don't actually need, or Jesus is the only one who understands what we actually need. Right? So in verse 25, Jesus says this. And there will be signs and sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. Uh, People uh, fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, verse 27. And then they will see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Verse 29, and he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out, and leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Verse 34, but watch yourselves, uh, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come uh, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap Jesus says that these things are going to keep taking place. And so we ought to be used to the fact that these things are going to keep taking place. But when you see these things taking place, our response is not to hang our heads and cry, oh, woe is me. Our response is to pick our heads up, to straighten our backs, and to be thankful that our day of redemption is another day nearer. He's coming soon. Just like when you see the first flowers of spring, it means that summer is not that far off. Yeah, it's another day of sorrow. Yes, it's another day of persecution. But we're one day closer to our redemption than we were yesterday. Praise the Lord. We can rejoice in that. So Jesus says, don't get lazy about this. We are on the clock here. Stay attentive, stay awake. Continue to ask God for the strength to escape and to endure these trials. And listen, I will be here before you know it. I will come on an instant. I come in an instant on the clouds with power and with great glory. And you're gonna want to stand before me on that day as one who is faithful to the end. Stay attentive, but never fear, because I'm the one who is pleased to carry you from this moment to that one. Don't be overwhelmed by these things. Why? Because you got me. So, so, so what does all this end of the world stuff have to do with Palm Sunday, right? I mean, can, can we just have left it with some kids trotting through here with palm branches going, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what I grew up doing. And truth be told, like, we're certain that Jesus' teaching here is happening over you know, somewhere in the middle of the week, there's several days that that Luke kind of blends together here. And so we're, we're fairly confident that by the time we get to the end of chapter 21 here, we're talking about stuff that's happening on Wednesday and Thursday morning, right? So th- this stuff is, it's there. So, so what, what does all this stuff have to do with Palm Sunday? Because because we, re- we desperately need to remember why Jesus is standing in the building. We need to remember why Jesus is in the building in the first place. He set his face like Flint, right? The triumphal entry was not a cute little parade. It was a clear assertion of his lordship. The, the cleansing of the temple and the intellectual defeat of the religious rulers was not Jesus sticking it to the man. It was a leveling with those who had no business at all leading God's people. Jesus standing in the middle of the bright and shiny, brand newly renovated temple complex while promising its imminent destruction is not a critique of whether or not churches should have nice stuff. It is a declaration that the old covenant was over. It's gone and no longer needed. See, what began on Palm Sunday extended all the way through to his death on the cross. Jesus goes looking for a fight. There is one last prophet left to die. There is one last prophet left to die. The owner this time sent his son instead of a servant. The heir has entered the vineyard. Jesus' death on the cross was no accident. He is not the victim of some uh, unfortunate circumstances. He is the instigator of those circumstances, which is why in chapter 22, verse 1, Luke tells us this. It says, Now the feast of the unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. So, why would Jesus provoke this? Why would he go gunning for this result? Because Jesus knows what we need more than we do. Jesus knows what we need more than we do. The death was the price for our sin. And he came for the express purpose of paying it. Great, he can teach with authority. Great, he did some miracles over here to authenticate his message. But he came for the express purpose of paying it. The dead. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, hear me clearly. Jesus is not some good moral teacher that you ought to consider for some life advice. That's not the game he's playing. He claims to be the active creator and sustainer of the cosmos who has now come near. The eternal Son of God put on flesh and dwelt among us. He lived a sinless life that neither you nor I am capable of living. And listen, he died on the cross as an innocent substitute in your place to make full and final payment for your sin. It's always what he was there to do. He was raised from the dead. It's a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness, and he calls on you now in this very moment to respond to him in repentance and in faith, to turn away from your sin, to turn to him as Savior and Lord. And listen, you can do that this morning. You can do that whenever, but now's as good a time as any. You can call on Jesus as Savior and Lord, and and I'd love to be helpful to you. If you're in the room here, I'll be standing down there if you want somebody to talk to. If you're watching us online, you can use the contact form in the video description. But man, I'd I'd love to help you process through what this response of repentance and faith looks like. Jesus wants to give you himself. The question is, is he good, and can he pull it off? I think the answer to both those questions are yes. If you're here this morning and you're already a follower of Jesus, our response is the same as it is every single week, right? We repent of sin and we lean into to what God has revealed about himself in the text. And this week, man, I, I really think he's showing us that he is a fierce streak for our good. Not just gentle and lowly, fierce when necessary. I don't know about you, but I'm capable of falling into the rut of forgetting what we're actually celebrating this, during this busy, really busy week, right? Especially when you're, you're like church staff, but like, like we got these holidays on the church calendar, and whether whether we find joy in them or they're just this thing that we got to do because we do the church thing. Like, I, even I myself can get into this rut where I forget how absolutely massive these realities are. Maybe you're not too much unlike me. Jesus, he, he's not just rolling along hoping some things play out a certain way. Got some ideas about how to fix this whole sin thing. We'll see if it works. He attacks it. sovereign lord and king is actively working in human history all the way from the roman empire sacking the city jerusalem wars and rumors of wars he is sovereign over that and he is just as sovereign over a donkey's colt and how the owner is going to react when they start untying it he is the great orchestrator and he is working all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his Purposes. And so I think our response this morning, our response going into this week that we call Holy Week, because it really, truly needs to be, to be filled with awe. It needs to be filled with awe. I think we need to be floored by his bigness, and I think we need to be floored by his unthinkable goodness to us. I think we need to be undone by the billion different variables he has lovingly accounted for in order to completely reconcile us to himself. It's No light fair. And lastly, I think that needs to produce a deep reverence and an unconstrained worship that flows out of us this week. That's the kind of holy week I want for us healthy flabbergasted awe Hosanna to the son of David blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord let's pray and respond together as we sing Father you're good to us thank you for the grace of getting through two and a half chapters may we better see that this is not just an event on the church calendar You came to pick a holy fight. You would not be deterred. You were not content to perform a miracle or two and teach with authority. You were not even content to to put the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees in their place. You were not content to merely drive out some, some folks who were mistreating your temple space. You came to die. And you put everything in place to make that make that happen. You knew what we needed more than we do. And so as we have this special week to think deeply on these events, would you floor us by them? Would you work deeply in our hearts and in our minds in such a way that they can never, ever be just the thing we do around Easter week. Change us by what we've learned here today. Help us as a church family celebrate well. And like we prayed earlier, I, there's not enough in us to give you what you deserve. But you seem to delight when it comes out of a humble faith, and so that's what we want to give. Help us celebrate well this week. Father, for those who don't know you here, would you make yourself known in this moment? Open eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to know. Draw men and women to yourself by your goodness and your grace. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.